Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. This child will be like Bali Maharaja in patience, a staunch devotee of Lord Krishna like Prahlad Maharaja, a performer of many Asramedha horse sacrifices, and a follower of the old and experienced men. Purport. Bali Maharaj, one of the twelve authorities in the devotional service of the Lord. Bali Maharaj is a great authority in devotional service because he sacrificed everything to please the Lord and relinquished the connection of his so-called spiritual master who obstructed him on the path of risking everything for the service of the Lord. The highest perfection of religious life is to attain to the stage of unqualified devotional service of the Lord without any cause or without being obstructed by any kind of worldly obligation. Bali Maharaj was determined to give up everything for the satisfaction of the Lord, and he did not care for any obstruction whatsoever. He is the grandson of Prahlad Maharaj, another authority in the devotional service of the Lord. Bali Maharaj and the history of his dealings with Vishnu Vamandev are described in the 8th Canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, chapter 10 to 23. Prahlad Maharaj a perfect devotee of Lord Krishna, Vishnu. His father, Hiranyakashipu, chastised him severely when he was only five years old for his becoming an unalloyed devotee of the Lord. He was the first son of Hiranyakashipu and his mother's name was Kayadu. Prahlad Maharaj was an authority in the devotional service of the Lord because he had his father killed by Lord Nasingadev, setting the example that even a father should be removed from the path of devotional service if such a father happens to be an obstacle. He had four sons, and, his, and the eldest son, Varochana, is the folly of Bali Maharaja mentioned above. The history of Prahlad Maharaja activities is described in the seventh canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Jitya Bali Sama Krishna Parada Eva Sadgraha Atar Shai Show Swamedhanam Vridhanam Paryupashakaha. This child will be like Bali Maharaj in patience, a staunch devotee of Lord Krishna, like Balad Maharaja, a performer of many asramedha horse sacrifices, and a follower of the old and experienced men. So, Vridhanam Vayupasakaha, one who follows people who are senior, people who are experienced, old and experienced. So, of course, sometimes people are old and inexperienced, and sometimes people are young and experienced. But those who are, who know, the tendency among youth is to think, I know everything, right? I don't, I don't need to learn anything from anybody. I already know everything, right? That's the general tendency. And somehow or other, when we grow up, we start realizing, wait a minute, I don't know everything. This reminds me of, of a very funny paper I was given. That when you're a little kid, or at least by the time you're a teenager, you think you know everything. When you go to university, you think you know just about everything. When you get your master's degree, you think you know some things. By the time you get your PhD, you think you know not very much. And by the time you're a university professor, you realize that you don't know anything. Right? You learn that what you knew yesterday is wrong. <laughs> so one of the things that happens as you get older and experienced is that you realize that you're really not so great 
You really don't know things. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes. You're not really sure of much anymore. But when you're young, you generally think you know everything. You think you know more than your parents, than your elders. But Morris Brickett would not be like that. Morris Brickett would be somebody that even in youth would understand that he had something to learn from his superiors. So this, of course, is the essence of how a society goes on, that the elders are actually knowledgeable and experienced, and they transmit that knowledge to the juniors who are submissive. Prabhupada talked about in Isha Panishad, I believe, in the purport to Mantra 10, how in the modern education system, the young people are just simply giving headaches to the older people. And we're seeing this more and more and more. I know when I was running a Gurukula, I used to think that, well, the reason that the parents of the children are just in this mood of criticizing and fault-finding and opposing is maybe it's because I'm a woman. Maybe if I was a man, they'd be respectful. Or I thought, maybe it's because, you know, I don't have a higher degree yet. And then I saw some devotees who had master's degrees and who were men running a school, and they got the same kind of disrespect from the parents. I thought, well, maybe it's because we're part of a little community. We all know each other. We all see each other outside of the school. Maybe if they saw me more as a professional. And then as part of my doctoral degree, I had a year of being an administrator in a government school, in a public school. And I saw that the parents treated the principal there with the same kind of disrespect and fault-finding. And what I gradually concluded is that at the present time, tearing down one's authorities, criticizing one's authorities, has become an international sport. It goes on even in societies that are maintaining some of their traditional values, such as India and China. That if you're an authority, if you're older and wiser and experienced, uh, all that means is that you're fair game for criticism rather than then you're someone to be followed. So then society really breaks down because each generation has to learn things over and over and over again. And, I mean, we can think about to what extent do I really revere my elders? You know, I know in ISKCON there's at least external etiquette given if somebody's a sannyasi or somebody's older someone's a disciple of Srila Prabhupada. But we often see that we'll go to some part of the world where Krishna consciousness started, say, in the 1980s or in the 1990s, and we see that they're making the same kind of mistakes that we made in America in the 70s and 80s. They're making them now. But we also find that if we say anything, if we say, well, you know, we tried to do things the way you're doing it, it didn't work out very well, we actually had this and this problems that come, and you know, you might want to try to learn from our mistakes. So the general mood is, you don't know what you're talking about. Maybe they'll say, yes, 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 and then they do what they want. Or they may write to your face, say, we're really not interested. And if you're going to speak like that, you're not welcome here. So it was very interesting because there was a community I was visiting over a period of years. And when I first started visiting there, it was a fairly new community. And although it was a wonderful and exciting place, I could see that they were making some mistakes that we had made in temples in America. And I knew what the result would be. 
but I wasn't able to say anything. I, I tried a little bit, and people were not receptive. And then a few years down the road, I was visiting every year, uh, people started coming to me complaining. This is happening. This is happening. And now they're a little open to listen. But in the meantime, so many people have been hurt. And so many things that could have gone nicely are not going nicely. To what extent are we following the path chalked out by the previous Mahajanas? That is our process is to follow in the footsteps of the authority. Right? This is one of the six favorable aspects of devotional service, to follow in the footsteps of the previous acharyas. Now, obviously, part of our following in the footsteps of the previous acharyas is to make everything according to time, place, and circumstance. I've recently had a correspondence with one devotee whose spiritual master did some preaching that was very much according to time, place, and circumstance. And others were criticizing. How can your guru preach like this? This is not exactly the way that Srila Prabhupada preached. So this disciple was writing the paper defending his guru and saying, look, other people also innovated. Other people also innovated. And I said, no, no, you're going about this the wrong way. To innovate according to time, place, and circumstance is the tradition. Instead of presenting things that other acharyas broke with tradition, so your guru can also, really what you should establish is that the tradition is to present according to time, place, and circumstance. Prabhupada said it's required to present Krishna consciousness according to time, place, and circumstance. And one who doesn't do so, that person is breaking the tradition. At the same time, one has to follow the previous acharyas. Being able to preach according to time, place, and circumstance is following the previous acharyas. That's what all of the acharyas do. They keep the essence and they present it according to the circumstances. Otherwise, uh, one is committing the offense of preaching to the faithless. If one presents Krishna consciousness in a way that the particular audience is unable to assimilate, then that is disregarding the austerities of speech and preaching something that people will not have faith in. So we have to examine to what extent am I actually willing to follow my predecessors. You know, the tendency is either not to follow openly. Well, I don't need to listen to anybody. I can just do whatever I want. This is the very striking tendency in modern society. Right? That's one alternative. And modern society, of course, supports this tendency with their evolutionary philosophy. Because their evolutionary philosophy says everything's getting better and better and better. We're always progressing. So if we're always progressing, then why should I listen to older people? Why should I listen to experienced people? There's no meaning to their experience. In fact, the older people should listen to the younger people because they're improving. And there's a general mood in modern society that if it's old, it's no good. If it's new, it's good. Never mind if it's actually good or not good. If it's new, it's good. 
know, always something new, something new, something new, something new. Buy this product. It's new. Well, is it better? Well, it's new. That's good enough. So that's one tendency. And the other tendency we see is to make a show of following the authorities. External, sentimental, but not actually follow. You know, to get up and, and jump and dance. Jai, Guru Jai, Jai, Jai. <laughs> you know, we've seen so much of this. Somebody comes on the Vyas Puja Day. Oh, Jai, Jai. <laughs> Uh, but they're not actually following. So these are two tendencies, and both of them come from pride. So Morris Brickett, he didn't have this kind of pride. He had actual humility. Now, the next point is, well, <laughs> look who else he's being compared to in this verse. So it ends. the verse ends with saying, that he's going to follow those who are wiser and more experienced. Which is an external symptom of humility. But what did it say in the beginning of the verse? Who is he compared to? Two persons, Bali and Pallad. Who happen to be grandson and grandfather. As Prabhupada explains in the purport. And for each of these persons, Srila Prabhupada gives a very short summary in this purport of each of these personalities. And in each case, he focuses on the fact that these personalities rejected an older, more experienced person. So we could focus on a number of things, but here Srila Prabhupada's purport is that. That Bali Maharaj relinquished the connection of his so-called spiritual master Prahlad Maharaj, the way he words in here is he had his father killed. And we know the famous pictures of Prahlad Maharaj offering a garland to Nasingadev after Nasingadev kills Hiranyakashipu. And Prabhupada sometimes points out, when would you garland the killing, the killer of your father? Of course, I, I do know of a case, one little boy, whose father was very abusive. And then when the police finally came to arrest the father, the boy embraced the police officer, although he had affection for his father. Anyway, these are two persons, Bali Maharaj and Prahlad Maharaj, who give the example of rejecting their authority. Father and guru. Similar. Guru is it's like a parental figure. In fact, mother and father are often considered some of our gurus. So of all the elderly experienced people one should follow, parents and guru are at the top of the list. I mean, in every society, it's not that just that you're going to follow advice of somebody you meet at the bus station who happens to be older than you. But if someone's your father or mother, or someone's your teacher, but to speak of if somebody is your teacher in spiritual life, not just your algebra teacher, how much more do you have to follow them? Researchers have shown that there's five universal moral principles 
And one of them is the concept of authority. That it's a greater moral reach to be disrespectful or to harm in authority than to harm somebody else. This is why those who kill police officers are treated as greater criminals than those who kill an ordinary person or those who kill a political officer. When you kill a political officer, it's called an assassination, not a murder. And the crime is much more serious. Oh, there are so many, every day, there are so many robberies. But if someone robs his own father, that makes the news. If somebody kills his own parents, that makes the news. Someone kills his own teacher. We become so much more horrified. If you heard, oh, John Doe, he broke into some random house and stole something and killed the inhabitants. We think how horrible. But if we hear that he killed his own father and mother and stole from his parents, a thousand times more horrible. Or some student in the school who shoots his teacher. Thousand times more horrible than if that same student were to shoot some other person out on the street. So how is it that Maharaj Brickett is being compared both ways? He's being compared, he's being described as somebody who will follow people who are older and wiser. And he's also described as being a follower of Bali and Prahlad. Bali in patience and Prahlad in devotion. So that is because the principle of following authority is not to follow authority blindly. In fact, in 434, when Srila Prabhupada in that purport comments about our relationship with Guru, he says both blind following and absurd inquiries are condemned. When Prabhupada gives examples of blind following, he says, just like 100,000 people are following this man, so he must be a bona fide guru. Thinking, well, if, you know, if this, as long as this person has a lot of followers, they must be right. <laughs> this person only has 10 followers, they must not be right. We call that, when we study logic, we call that the logical fallacy of bandwagon. Everybody else is doing it, so it must be a good thing to do. The point of blind following is following somebody for reasons that have nothing to do with that person's qualification. Generally speaking, father and mother care about the child and are affectionate to the child and have the best interests of the child in mind. Generally. In the vast majority of cases, even at the present time, parents care about their children. In fact, who is more of a well-wisher than the mother and father. Very difficult to find a greater well-wisher than your parents. Even brothers and sisters, spouses, children. Parents are the epitome of self-sacrifice for the sake of the children. Which is why Srila Prabhupada said the love, particularly of the mother for the child, 
is the closest thing one finds in this world to spiritual love. In the animal kingdom, the love of the mother for the child is much greater than the urge for mating or for defending. A mother elephant will stay with her dying child even if the herd moves on and she will die as well. You know, many species that will sacrifice their life or risk their life to protect their children. So generally it's like that. But sometimes the parent becomes the enemy of the child. I mean, Hiranyagashipu was an enemy of his son, both materially and spiritually. He was literally trying to kill his child. In modern society, we call this child abuse. You know, some parent who puts their child in the microwave or locks them in a room without anything to eat, right? beats them, burns them, whatever. These are criminals. And the government takes the child away from such persons. And the persons go to jail. So the same with Prahlad, where Nisingadev, the highest government, he didn't just put Irani Kashipu in jail, he killed him. He gave him the death penalty. So sometimes the parents are the enemy of the child. And of course, Irani Kashipu was not only the material enemy of the child, he was not only the penultimate, not, not penultimate, the ultimate, the epitome, the personification of a child abuser. But he also was opposing Prahlad spiritually. So not only did he try to kill his body, he was trying to kill his devotion. And Prahlad Maharaj was always very respectful to his father. He was never disrespectful. But he wasn't obedient. He didn't say, okay, Dad, you know, you don't want me to worship Krishna, fine, I won't. No, he went on with his worship of Krishna. And after his father tried to kill him and failed, Prahlad Maharaj became so emboldened that he started preaching to the other students. So up until that time, it was his personal devotion. And he would sometimes say something to his teachers. Uh, but then he became a, a, a preacher. So he was not, although he was respectful and we could even say affectionate to his father. He understood that this father is not a real authority. Prahlad Maharaj was not a blind follower. And if we can imagine, this may be difficult, but if we can imagine a society in which people really respected authority, then we can see that this ignoring his father's order was a huge sacrifice. You know, we may not understand that in our modern society. In our modern society, we may think, oh, you know, okay, you disobey your father, big deal. So what? Everyone's disobeying their father, practically speaking. But for Pallad Maharaj and his society, his time, to disobey your father was a huge sacrifice. And we look at Bali Maharaj. In his case, it's his guru. 
So again, generally, guru, by definition, is the person who's sacrificing himself for his disciple. Guru means somebody who's willing to take a neophyte devotee, neophyte person or materialistic person and bring them up to the level of self-realization, which is a very difficult job. Why difficult job? Because we're covered with so many anartas. And the removing of those anartas, especially in the beginning, it feels like a very painful process. Toward the end, it becomes a joyful process, but in the beginning, it feels like a very painful process. It's kind of like, you know, working in an addiction treatment center where you're forcibly removing the drug or the alcohol that everyone is craving. And even though people have voluntarily checked themselves into the treatment center, still, when you refuse to give them their intoxicant, they may become very disturbed and very angry at you. So it is the duty of the guru, the sadhu, to cut and to put the medicine in the eye. Om Ajnana Timivandasya Gananjana Shalakaya so if your eye is diseased, the medicine to cure your disease may sting your eye. It does. It stings the eye. This analogy is given. But it restores your vision. But in the stinging stage, people, got, they don't appreciate. <laughs> and the spiritual master has to tolerate that. Has to tolerate that the disciples are or maybe disobedient, maybe unappreciative, may become critical, may leave. I am the bona fide spiritual master at one level. You know, it's so much easier just to be engaged in one's own bhajan than to take responsibility to train others. Done out of compassion, out of an overflowing of love. Out of freedom. They're not obligated. But in the case of Bali Maharaj's guru, Sukracharya, although Sukracharya had engaged Bali in Jagya for Vishnu, it was very superficial. Or let us say it was on the platform of Sakama. He wasn't, Sukracharya wasn't worshipping Vishnu out of love. He was worshipping Vishnu out of calculation. That if I worship Vishnu, I'll get what I want. It's not that Sukracharya was a devotee. And Bali was a devotee. Although materially, externally, he was in a family of demons. And another way he was in a family of devotees being Prahlad's grandson. He was a devotee. So Bali's worship of Vishnu was genuine. It was heartfelt. Just imagine it. Every day you're you're chanting your japa, you're worshiping the deity, you're reading Bhagavad Gita, and you're working under the instructions of a guru. And one day, and this is our goal, one day Krishna appears before you. 
Every day you're chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And one day when you chant like that, you'll see Nam and Nami, they're the same. Nam is actually Krishna. There will be Krishna. You look at the deity, and instead of seeing a marble carving or a stone or some brass sculpture or wooden carving, there's Krishna. And then if you go to your guru and say, I'm chanting and there's Krishna. I look at the deity and there's Krishna. And if the guru said, this is nonsense. So that's what happened. Bali was worshipping Vishnu. And then Vishnu comes and appears. Here I am. So you're offering sacrifice to Vishnu. Now actually offered to Vishnu in person. So, um, Sukracharya said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is Vishnu in disguise. He's going to take everything. And Bali said, well, this is great if it's Vishnu in disguise. You've been telling me to worship Vishnu. Here he is. No, no. He'll take everything away. You know, you can do a little sacrifice, but don't do a big sacrifice. And how many of our elders, when we decided to join the Hare Krishna movement, said something similar? I don't mind if you're religious, but not so religious. You know, keep it in moderation. Keep it to once a week. Don't go overboard. And Bali Maharaj said no. Again, we find that Bali was very respectful. He was not disrespectful to Sukracharya, but he was disobedient. So, how do we deal with this? Because, again, we're in a modern society where the tendency is either open disobedience or covered disobedience towards authority. That's the, the two moods in modern society. Disobey and be obvious that you're disobeying or disobey with a show of obedience. Whereas what we want to do is we want to have genuine obedience to a genuine authority. Both things. Genuine authority and genuine obedience. The first one has to find the genuine authority. And then one has to give genuine obedience. And to non-genuine authorities, we're supposed to give at least superficial obedience. Bhagavatam says that. You say, yes, yes. One should be respectful to every living entity. What you speak of to our fathers and mothers and husbands and bosses and government officials. We don't want to disrespect anyone. But our genuine obedience should be given to the genuine authority. And once we've decided that this is a genuine authority, then we should be very careful that our obedience is deep. That we don't minimize Something that our authority says is very important. Like Prabhupada said, the most important instruction is to chant 16 rounds. Not to minimize that. Oh, I don't have time. I have this, I have that. Prabhupada said we have time to eat. <laughs> Prabhupada said, 
it, it's a genuine emergency when we don't have time to eat and sleep. And, and then you make up your chanting the next day. So once we're convinced someone's a genuine authority, then we look at what do they emphasize. And we should emphasize the same thing. And follow heartfelt. Not just externally. One uh, very, very old friend of mine who recently reconnected with me was saying how she'd become very ill. And in her illness, she wasn't able to wake up early in the morning anymore. And one thing she realized was that her chanting of Japa for so many years had been without taste. She was always chanting early in the morning without distraction. So she's thinking, okay, I'm chanting my 16 rounds. I'm, I'm, I'm good at chanting. <laughs> I'm following my vow. But now that she was forced to chant later in the day because of her illness, she saw, oh, that was a material arrangement. I don't actually have anything called taste. So if we discover that our following is superficial, we discover that our following is not what it could be or should be, then we make an attempt to increase the depth of our following, to become a real follower. Superficial follower is easy, but deep follower. And we can only, of course, become a deep follower when we're following the right person. So a deep follower of the wrong person will lead to disappointment, and the superficial follower of the right person will lead to disappointment. And this is what we can learn from Bali Maharaj, Prahlad Maharaj, and Maharaj Rikit. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Okay, so I've automatically unmuted everybody on free conferencing. If you need to or want to mute yourself again, just press star six. If there's any questions or comments, go ahead. Mother of my life, Druva. Oh no, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Druva Prabhu. Okay, thank you, Prabhu. Mother of my life. I just want to comment on, thank you very much, very, very enjoyable, very good class. It's exactly, I'm, I'm also here with my girlfriend, Ashley, and I, thank you very much for giving such a wonderful class, very appropriate to our time, place, and circumstance. <laughs> nice, nice to hear your wonderful. voice again after so many years. Thank you, Mataji. And I appreciate also the fact that I have been given always by the mercy of Krishna proper authorities. So thank you, Mata, for giving me such teachings. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Mother Irmala, a lovely class. I also concur. I'd like to ask a question um, about following and, and rejecting. Because you talked a lot, you gave really nice examples of both Bali and Pallad that they rejected. Yet in, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, Arjuna is famous for Sarvam Etadratamanye, where after accepting Krishna, he said, I, I totally accept as truth everything that you say. 
And that was, we certainly feel or realize that uh, conviction in following Prabhupada. How do we instruct, where do we find the balance in instructing particularly the followers of the next generation of Prabhupada's disciples that have now become gurus? Um, how do we strike the nice balance that we, you know, totally accept at the same time we have to be careful to watch out that if something's not exactly in line, then we do have to reject. Could you comment on that? You always ask questions like this, don't you? <laughs> Is that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> you put me in the hot seat. They're not political <laughs> questions. I try to ask um I try to think of a nice question that will, um, you know, enliven the speaker and, um, um, you know, give more support to the class. I would say, you know, we have to, you have to start out with making sure you have the right authority. Therefore, the Hari Bhakti law says that the only way to find a guru is to live with the guru for one year and there's mutual examination. One year minimum. So we have to be very careful that there's not blind following in the beginning. That this is the person, you know, the the organization has authorized this person. So many other people are following this person. They must be bona fide. We have to be very careful. Take one's time. Really get to know somebody. No blind following. Uh, I would I would say that the majority of the cases of disappointment and later rejection came because this basic Shastra principle was not being followed. We think, oh, here's this person. Someone else tested them for me. You know, the GBC tested them for me. All the other disciples tested them for me. I don't need to test. No. I mean, if you want to delegate your testing of an authority to someone else, okay, fine, that's your responsibility. But that's not the system according to Guru Sadhu and Shastra. According to Guru Sadhu and Shastra, it's a personal relationship. You know, if you actually live with somebody for a year, you're going to have a pretty good idea of whether or not you want to surrender. If you just see them for here and there, you know, maybe you don't have a good idea. There's a lot of people who can put on a show. So I know of many cases where there's really no personal connection between guru and disciple, nothing. I mean, I was was dealing with one situation where the person who'd been getting initiated was actually being guided by someone else other than the initiator. So our our Krishna Das, who was taking initiation from, you know, Krishna Maharaj, had actually been guided by Ram Das. I'm making up the names. And Ram Das had a personal relationship with Krishna Das, but Krishna Das took initiation from Krishna Maharaj because he was the approved person and the big guy. And Krishna Das was on the verge of death from cancer, and the guru didn't, the guru didn't even know. No relationship. So I want you to be careful that one chooses the right authority. That the onus is on the disciple. 
choose the right guru. And the onus is on the guru. Be careful who you take as a disciple. Make sure you have a personal relationship. Make sure you know the person. I say that's the first thing. And having a system that does not require such testing and, in fact, indirectly encourages people to avoid such testing is, in my own understanding, a recipe for disaster. Hmm. So I see that we've created a, an unbonafide situation and then we lament the results of that. That's sad. Something that's very sad. The question is, is it wrong? Is it... In general, though, because Bali Maharaj obviously discovered after accepting Sukaracharya that he was unbonafide. So there is some precedent for that. In other words, one could argue that the only time that one should be examining the authority is before accepting them. And in general, that's true. It's just like before you marry someone, that's when you look at the horoscope. Mm. And it's not that you're married to somebody for three years and then you say, I wonder if we're compatible. Before marriage, there's supposed to be this sort of in- investigation. Traditionally, that was done by the parents. Sometimes it was done by the boy or girl themselves, like the swine bar. The girl did that herself also. But that generally before marriage, you look at the family, you look at the horoscopes, you ask the friends, meet the person, you go through some intermediary, some matchmaker. There's some, you take some time and some care. And Robert says very clearly that because such care is not taken in modern society, there's divorce. But that doesn't mean that there can never be any separation after marriage. Prabhupada talks about situations where the husband and wife should live separately. He actually talks about it. He says, you know, if the husband has fallen, then the wife is not obligated. She can live separately from him. So in the same way, uh, with a spiritual master, if one does one's best. First of all, one has to do one's best to investigate before committing, which I see in many, many cases, perhaps most cases today, is absent. And then after committing, if something happens, you know, sometimes even with our best investigation, there's a problem. And one example in the Shastra of this with marriage is Maharaj Anga. Where Prabhupada says he married a, a woman who was the daughter of death personified. That doesn't mean Yamaraj. In other words, she was the daughter of a very cruel man. And so somehow her son became also very cruel. And Prabhupada said that in that very nice purport where Prabhupada says how much care was taken for marriages, he said, but sometimes by the will of the Lord, there's some sort of mistake which aids towards detachment. So sometimes even with careful investigation, one may discover later either that I made a mistake, I should not have accepted this person as an authority, or the person you accept as an authority changes. That happens. You know, that happens. So generally speaking, 
after a period of testing someone as an authority, whether that person is guru, whether that person is husband, whether that person is an employer, generally speaking, after we've gone through some period of testing and we're confident that this is the place to repose my faith, then we obey. Even if our authority makes some a seeming mistake, disobedience is a much worse sin than making a mistake. So even if we think my authority is wrong, a nice example of this is the Pandavas. So Maharaj Yudhisthira was gambling with Duryodhan. And by any way of looking at things, Maharaj Yudhisthira made serious mistakes. He kept gambling. He gambled away his, his kingdom. He gambled away his brothers. He gambled away their collective wife. But we did not find that his four brothers opposed him publicly. They didn't leave him. They didn't disobey him. Even Dropadi. I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to imagine what would be more of a, you know, what a horrible thing to do. Uh, your husband, who's your protector, gambles you away to your enemy. And if Duryodhan, and what were they what were they trying to do to her? Duryodhan and Dusasan, first thing they wanted to do was strip her naked in public. You know, if they had actually been able to keep her under their authority, what would they have done to her? It's not hard to imagine. And her own husband put her in this situation against her will, without her knowledge or consent. It was a very serious mistake, but she didn't give up her loyalty and her obedience. So generally speaking, even if our authority makes a mistake, we still remain loyal. However, if our authority, and Prabhupada explains this here in today's purport, he said, even a father should be removed from the path of devotional service if such a father happens to be an obstacle. And about Bali, it says he did not care for any obstruction whatsoever. So in severe cases, one is enjoined to reject. It has to be severe, at least according to Haribati the law. So Haribati the law, which is where we're enjoined to test, also tells us that one should try to rectify one's authority and only reject one's authority if the situation is severe and incorrigible. I mean, in the case of Mars Yudhisthira, he was very repentant and he apologized. He wasn't, Maharaj Yudhisthira was Dharmaraj. He was the personification of Dharma. He wasn't an irreligious man. Ultimately, of course, with Maharaj Yudhisthira was Lila. But still, the point is there. So, this is, I don't think we can give some sort of plug in formula. I think we can talk about principles that have to be applied individually. First principle is before you accept somebody as an authority, there should be some testing. Second principle is that even if your authority is not perfect and seemingly makes some mistakes, still following and loyalty is more important than whether or not there's mistakes. Krishna will adjust the mistakes. Krishna will be pleased upon us for our following and he'll adjust the mistakes. And next principle is if one's authority tells someone something that's very serious, a very serious moral or spiritual violation, 
then it is also our duty to reject, either to reject that particular instruction or if it's ongoing, to reject that person as an authority. One cannot use the excuse that I engaged in immoral acts because I was ordered by my authority. That was the excuse of the Nazis at the Nuremberg trial. I was just following orders. That's not accepted. One always has to retain one's discrimination. And how do one how does one balance between being loyal for some occasional mistake and being disobedient when there's a serious lapse in moral or spiritual instruction? All we can give is the principle. Because every case is going to be individual. And ultimately, each of us are responsible for our own individual decisions. We cannot say, well, I'm not really responsible because Ormila said this in this class. No, I'm responsible. Prabhupada talks about the birds flying in formation. When the geese fly in formation, they help each other. Their, their way of flying creates situations with the air that make it easier for all of them to fly. At the same time, each bird is flying on their own. And Prabhupada said, although our relationships are eternal, if somebody lags behind, they may not meet at the destination. That we get strength from each other. We can get strength and guidance from these examples in Shastra of both following and rejection. We can understand the principles. But ultimately, we have to make our own decisions. And ultimately, we're responsible for our own decisions. It's a great answer. Thank you. Anybody else? I'll ask another question if no one else has one. The easier one, I hope. Um, Mother Amelia, in, in answering my question, you um, mentioned that we see... Uh, someone taking initiation and but yet has you know practically no contact with his spiritual master and take all their instruction elsewhere um, is that is that wrong um, I, I mean in our Vaishnava tradition in reading the Chaitanya Charitamrita there are I guess many examples of devotees who would take initiation from someone but really considered someone else their spiritual master because they were they were giving uh, shiksha on the regular on a regular basis. I mean, we have spiritual masters now, um, our god brothers, who have literally thousands of disciples, um, great, venerable, wonderful Vaishnavas. But in reality, how much personal instruction can they get from them? And it seems in reality that they do get their shiksha on, on a regular basis. From, from other devotees with very little actual contact with their spiritual master. It's fine. It's not wrong as long as it's authentic. We um, portrayed in the society. So if we have a society where who is your guru has to be answered by the question of who is your diksha guru when really your main relationship is with a shiksha guru, then we promote a false system. So a person should be able to and be encouraged to consider whoever is their primary guru is actually their primary guru. 
And it's perfectly fine to have your primary guru be a shiksha guru. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, our specific line is given in terms of shiksha gurus. Right. The line that Bhakti Tanaka Sarasvati gives that Srila Prabhupada repeats, that's a line of shiksha gurus. If we gave the and it's not even all the shiksha gurus, it's just the prominent ones. There's big gaps in that line. There's gaps of 100 years here and 1,000 years there. So it's a, a line of the most prominent shiksha gurus only. Our diksha line would look very different. Interestingly enough, our diksha line would have a lot of women in it. Hmm. So we have a, uh, we consider our parampara through shiksha. We consider what sangha you're a member of through shiksha. We don't consider what sangha you're a member of through diksha. We consider what sangha you're a member of through shiksha. We understand that our most important connection in the parampara is generally the person from whom we take the most shiksha. And then we have a situation where we have informal regulation of shiksha and a very formal bureaucratic regulation of diksha with an external official emphasis on diksha, whereas the real emphasis is on shiksha. So we have a mismatch between official policy and public faith and reality. That, mm-hmm. I think, is I think it's, it's confusing and creates problems for people. But to have one shiksha guru as one's primary guru, I mean, Krishna took diksha. Who did Krishna take diksha from? Sandipanamuni. Nope. Really? Sandy Pani Muni is Krishna's Diksha Guru. Who oh, is yes. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I thought, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, I apologize. Who is Krishna's Diksha? That, that's, I, I expected somebody to make that mistake. <laughs> Who is yeah. Krishna's Diksha Guru? That's the family guru. Who, who is he? Sargamuni. Sargamuni. Yeah. So Krishna took Diksha from Gargamuni. But he got all his training from Sandipani Muni. So obviously, that's a bona fide system. But when we talk about Krishna's guru, who do we usually talk about? Sandipani Muni. Muni, which is why when I asked who Krishna's Diksha guru was, that was the first answer I got. Yes. So it, we should be the same. Our what we <clears throat> What we say we do to be actually what we do. Is that all right? That's, that's a great yes. answer. That's what, I, that's what I thought you were going to go with it. Thank you. Is, is there any place we could look at the Diksha line? Bhakti Manotakur lists his Diksha line. Um, he lists it in Bengali. I remember exactly in what book he listed. I, I mean, I have it both in Bengali and in English. Um, you know, it, we're, we're going to have a difficulty because Diksha line of whom? In other words, Bhakti Vinod's Diksha line does not include Jagannath Das Babaji. Bhakti Vinod Thakur's Diksha line, you know, if you're going to take take our Diksha line from Prabhupada, that's going to end at Gorkishore Das Babaji and branch off. It's going to branch 
when you come to Gorky Shore Dust Babaji and Bhakti Vinod, you, you can have a split because Gorky Shore Dust Babaji was not initiated by Bhakti Vinod. So if you're going to follow Gorky Shore Dust Babaji's Diksha line, it's not the same as Bhakti Vinod Thakur's Diksha line. And I'd have to ask somebody where, where Gorky Shore Dust Babaji's Diksha line goes. Bhakti Vinod Thakur's Diksha line goes up to Janavamata. Which is one reason that Bhaktivedanta mentions her many times in his songs. And there's, uh, for example, in, in the line between Janava Mata and Bhaktivedanta, there's four women Diksha Gurus. Now, then, if we look at Jagannath Das Babaji, if you will, he's going to have a different Diksha line, and so forth. So we would end up with a lot of of lines. You know, if we have to keep picking up again at each of the persons in the line then we have a lot of short little lines here and there that aren't connected with one another through diction. Can you picture that? Yeah, yeah that's very that? interesting. Are there four female gurus after Janava Devi or before? After. They're between Janava and Bhakti. Okay. Yeah, that was my main interest, actually. So you answered my question. Yeah. There were... You know, I think there were like 10. I'd have to look it up again. But I think there were like 10 Diksha Gurus between Janavan and Bhakti Vinod. You see, the standard understanding of Gaudiya Vaishnavas until the time of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati was that one had to trace one's parampara through Diksha to an associate of Mahaprabhu in order to call oneself a Gaudiya Vaishnava. You had to trace a Diksha line to Janabhamata or to Lord Nityananda or to Narotamadas Sakur or something like that. So Bhakti Sananda Saraswati specifically wanted to repudiate that. And the reason was that a lot of those Diksha lines had become, um, how would we put it, official. Am I still on? Yes, you're yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of them had become just um, they they weren't they weren't deep. They were ritualistic. Not all of them. I mean, Prabhupada writes in Chaitanya Charitamrita about these other branches of the Chaitanya tree that are not in the Bhaktisanta Saraswati line. He says that there are bona fide spiritual masters in these organizations. So, we're not we're, we're not at all saying that just because one comes in the Diksha line from an associate of Mahaprabhu one's in an Apasampradaya because that would make Bhaktivinoda Thakur in an Apasampradaya. We're not saying that. Uh, we're saying that some of those lines were Apasampradaya, some of them were not. And Bhaktivinoda Saraswati wanted to establish that the most important thing was Shiksha, not Diksha. So he could have taken his line back through Diksha but then it wouldn't have gone through Bhakti Vinod. It would have gone in a very different direction. Mother Irma, I don't know how much longer you want to stay on, but uh, we had a discussion uh, a few months ago, I think before you uh, came on and started giving classes, and we were talking um, about Mirabai, trying to exactly understand what her position is. Uh, it, it appears that uh, she didn't really, that we know of, have a, uh, a guru, but just kind of spontaneously 
uh, had this uh, intense devotion, and she's considered a great saint. There's different things said about her. Uh, how do we, you should we know, view Mirabai? Don't know much about, about her biography. Uh, Srila Prabhupada mentions her in at least one purport as a great devotee, and he named at least one disciple after her. We we really don't know a whole lot about her biography, so there's a number of conflicting stories about what is her uh, biographical detail. And I would not assume that she had no guru. I think that that's a that's an, an unwarranted assumption. I mean, it's possible. Like Sukadev Goswami didn't go through any of the rituals of initiation, but Sukadev Goswami did take shiksha from his father Vyasadeva in order to present the Bhagavatam. So if I want to think of somebody who literally had no guru, then I think of somebody like Judd Bharat, who had remembered his guru from a previous life. Otherwise, I can't think of instances of someone who has no guru. It's the principle of someone who has to have a guru. So it's, I think we can expect that if someone's displaying symptoms of Krishna Bhakti and Krishna Prema, that most likely they had a guru. But Prabhupada accepts Mirabai as, as a pure devotee. Although I don't know of any instance of him singing her song. Yeah, there's no mention of her guru in her songs or in her writings. It seems like she favored a direct connection with Krishna. So there's the problem. Again, it's hard to say. You know, she has her songs. I mean, in Bhakti Vinotaku's songs, does he mention Jagannath Das Babaji? No. In his writings, he'll... In his writings, he does, but, you know, he wrote a hundred books. But the idea of of taking shelter of one of the servants of uh, Krishna, one of the serving groups... Yeah, we don't see that. We definitely don't see that in in nearby songs. Which, you know, there are... um, she, She presents herself as a gopi. And there are independent gopis who don't belong to any yuta. And there are also gopis in, you know, Chandravali's group and in neutral groups. So I don't, we don't have enough information about Mirabai to answer those sort of questions. I mean, what we can say is that Srila Prabhupada accepted her as a pure devotee. That we can okay, that, That's very good because we had come up with a completely different conclusion. Or I don't know, at least I did from our discussion. This is uh, this is good because we were thinking that, well, maybe she's a, a great devotee, but we shouldn't follow her because it appears that she doesn't didn't accept the guru. But you're saying we just don't know enough about her. We should just accept as a guru, doesn't necessarily... My assumption is that she had a guru. Because we know that by the grace of, of Krishna, one gets guru. By the grace of guru, one gets Krishna. And the instances of persons 
you know, like Arjuna, who had Krishna as his guru. Of course, Arjuna also had Dronacharya as a guru. And, and Bhishma, in, in some sense, as a guru. <clears throat> but the instances of people who were disciples of Krishna directly is very unusual. So it's possible, but because pure devotion generally manifests in somebody who's gotten the mercy of a devotee, so if we see that someone's a pure devotee, the assumption is that they have the mercy of a devotee. Just like Prabhupada was asked, why did Mahaprabhu not say anything about guru in his shikshastika? And Prabhupada says, no, the Trinata P verse implies guru. You know, if, if you have, there are certain diseases that you can only get by contact with another person who has that disease. You just can't get it any other way. You know, so if someone has one of those sort of diseases, even if you don't know what their contact was, you can assume that there was some contact. That would be the default assumption. The default assumption wouldn't be that they had no contact. And I have read biographies of Mirabai where it discusses who she had as a guru. It's just that there's a number of different biographies. They're conflicting. And most scholars simply say that we don't have anything that we can say this we know to be the case. And by the way, that's true to some extent of some of the saints in our line also. In some cases, we, we don't know their birth year. Or we don't know that many details about them. I mean, one thing that's always interested me about Rupa Sanatan is it says that when they went to join Mahaprabhu, they gave up their grahasta life. There's no discussion of their grahasta life. Were they married? If they were married, were they married to Muslim women? I mean, it just, it just isn't there. The information just isn't there at all. It's, just a, it's an empty hole. In fact, I was talking uh, with my daughter-in-law the other day about Bhagavatam, about the story of King Sagara. And Sagara's father had lost, this is given in the ninth canto, Sagara's father had lost his kingdom. And so he went with his several wives to the forest. And it specifically said they were living as Vanaprastha. But when he died, one of his wives was pregnant with Sagara. So we understand that in Vanaprastha there's no sex life. So how is it that one of the wives is pregnant? So there's just no explanation given. I mean, it's interesting, it's explained that you know, the co-wives gave her poison and um, that that the child was born along with the poison. But there's a, a lot of things are just not explained. Uh, well, I, have, I have one more question. Um, I've been asked this many times by disciples of uh, these kangurus that have fallen, totally fallen, and I've been asked, like, at what point do they should quit following the instructions of the fallen guru or listen to their tapes or their bhajans or... Should they listen to their um, bhajans or their or read their books? Or their classes that they gave, you know, at what point should they, or should they never stop listening, or should they stop, or what's the criterion? 
Um, again, all, all I can give you is principles. How to individually apply those principles in an individual manner. So the principles given, particularly in Hari Bhakti Vilas, is that if the spiritual master has difficulty, one should try to help them get back on the right path. And if that doesn't work, then one can take their permission to take shiksha elsewhere. And at a certain point, one can reject them immediately. Um, now, what does it mean to reject them immediately? Uh, you know, reject them entirely, rather. What does that mean? So, when one rejects someone entirely, the only criteria for such rejection is if that person is, in the Sanskrit, an avaishnava, if they're not a Vaishnava. Now, in the commentary, there's different definitions of how do you tell someone is an Vaishnava. So the most objective and charitable definition is a person is a Vaishnava if they've received initiation from a Vaishnava and they are worshiping Vishnu. So as long as a person has those two qualifications, they are a Vaish, they are Vaishnava, and one should not totally reject them. Some of the other commentaries say that a person becomes, and I believe, I believe the first one is by Sanatana Swami and somebody else. And then a more subjective, uh, less charitable, shall we say, definition given by, I believe, Jiva Goswami Bhakti Vinod, described as someone ceases to be a Vaishnava if they're engaged in sense gratification, if, if they've committed offenses against devotees, and so forth. So again, this is an individual judgment. If you look at your authority, whoever it may be, not only guru, this is particularly, these verses are particularly in regard to guru, but they could be applied to other types of authority. And you say, this authority is not a Vaishnava. Then we don't hear from someone who's not a Vaishnava. If you decide the person is a Vaishnava, then you're going to be looking at the three broad categories of Vaishnavas. Are they a Vaishnava who's superior to you, who you should hear from? Are they someone who's an equal, that's your friend? Or are they someone who's subordinate to you, that you should help? And you've got to decide. Also, we should say that we hear from many people in many different ways. Prabhupada took advice even from, you know, just friends sometimes. That he had some friend who said, oh, you're putting all your energy into magazines, but people throw them away. Why don't you uh, translate books instead? And he did. So Krishna can also speak um, through many people. At my katmanu bhava nam vikal parahita swayam, dakti shakti swamaya. So Krishna is also present in the material energy. So when we say hear from somebody, we can hear from different people about different things. And we have to decide on what is our degree of hearing. I mean, I go to so many classes on Shastra that I listen to, even if the person speaking is not someone I accept as an absolute authority. 
I mean, I'm assuming the people listening to me now that probably most or all of you do not accept me as an absolute authority. You're hearing me and you're deciding what you want to accept and how much you want to accept it. So it's not necessarily black or white. It's not that either I hear from somebody if they're an absolute authority or I don't hear from them at all. And some people we may say, well, this person's a Vaishnava and I have all respect for them, but I find it disturbing to hear from them at all. I mean, I think most of us have people like that in our lives that we just, I don't want to hear from this person. I find the way, their way of preaching and their mood, is, it's disturbing. It's an obstacle for my own advancement, so I don't hear from them. And other people I may hear from with um, a lot of, how would you say, discrimination. With a lot of, well, you know, I'm really going to think about what they say. And other people I'm going to hear from really just soaking in every word and, and everywhere in between. Mother Irma, the past 15 or 16 years, based on hearing what you've instructed me, I've always accepted it because you have never, from what I've also seen in my personal life, on my own, trying to understand the instruction of Srila Prabhupada from his Vani, you don't give anything else but that. So I've always accepted what you say as authoritative because of that, because I've never found anything that you've said to me to be contradictory. So, Well, that's very kind of you, Drew. Yes, Monty. You're, you're very kind. But I think you understand the point. Yes. You know, the point is that we have degrees of, of hearing and we have degrees of surrender. It's not a black and white thing. And each of us has to make an individual choice with so, with, with so-and-so person, Krishna Das, Krishna Dasi, to what extent do I take them as authority? And how many people are there that we're going to take as an absolute authority? That list should be pretty small. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, glory to Srila Prabhupada. Jai. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Mata. Jai. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.